Ooh, man. <laughs> the realities of what angels look <laughs> like. Like. <laughs> like, right. It's like, little little baby with wings? No, how about 300 eyes and 60 wings, and also it's a wheel of fire. Yes. Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast where we connect academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, eternally exhausted weekend librarian, Martha Sullivan, and I am here, as always, with my other co-host. Um, also, albeit not eternally exhausted, uh, coming back from a vacationer, mini-vacationer, uh, Pete Romberg. Show off. Mm-hmm. I now work Saturdays. Just I'm sorry. for the foreseeable future. Uh, that sucks. Yeah, I assume that means you have a day off during the week. Yes, I I get I'm off on Wednesdays and Sundays. Mm, that's like the worst combination. Yes. Yikes! I'm sorry. Um, but I did get the results of my COVID test back, and it was negative. Huzzah! So for the moment, yeah, I got real depressed when I realized the other day that I'm probably going to have to start getting regular COVID tests. Just you know. <laughs> to yeah. make sure that I'm not like a walking time bomb. Yeah. Um, about a week ago, I accidentally described the negative results of my test as positive because I was using the phrase like, got some positive results back, but like Ooh, in a thumbs up, people, it's good way. <laughs> how many people did you freak out? Um, I think it was like three and they're all like, hold on. The tone of yes. your voice and the words that you're saying do not match. <laughs> Don't match. <laughs> so which one do you mean? Uh, but anyway, the horrible state of the world notwithstanding, uh, we are here today to talk about gothic literature and stories, which I am very excited about. Uh, listeners of the podcast will know that every once in a while I am able to sort of long compete into talking about something that is purely self-indulgent and my jam, and this would be <laughs> one of those episodes. Uh, but before we get before we get into the paint on that, uh, it's time for us to tell you all what is stuck in our heads this week. What piece of media, pop culture, event, thing is occupying our brain space? Um, Pete, I'm going to have you go first, since yours is a little bit off topic here. Yeah, today. so I'm cheating very hard and not doing a piece of media. Um, I'm literally just back from a, a mini vacation, like took Friday off, we're recording on Sunday. So quick, but nice. Um, went out to the Driftless region of Wisconsin. That is Southwest Wisconsin, sort of like La Crosse and South. Uh, it includes such places as Spring Green, which is the, the Frank Lloyd Wright house of Taliesin and the house on the rock. We did not go there. Uh, we were further north and further west, closer to La Crosse. Um, the Driftless region is absolutely beautiful. It's the part of the state that the glaciers did not touch during multiple glacial periods. So it's all rolling hills, and it's called Driftless because glacial drift would have filled in all the valleys and leveled all the hills and everything, um, and that didn't happen. So while the rest of the state looks like the Midwest, this looks like hill country. Um, did a lot of wonderful hiking, stayed at a lovely B&B, &B, which... Thankfully, we were in a separate detached building because we were not about to stay in a room in a house uh, shared with other people. So uh, this B&B &B had a, a little detached building that we were able to be in uh, away from anyone else. Um, you know, various points we were feeling like, Ugh, if only this wasn't COVID times, it'd be lovely to go to that winery, go to that brewery, whatever. Um, 
but we got some takeout food. We did some lovely hiking, did just some driving around, uh, listening to music and enjoying the, the scenery. Um, I've always loved driving in mountains. This is the closest I'll get without going out to either Colorado or Pennsylvania. So, Yeah, I'm trying very hard to convince my husband that we should go cabbing, camping um, or rent a cabin or something for a few days over the week of Labor Day. Mm. Um, I have that whole week off because we were supposed to go out to the East Coast with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, my family is still going. We decided that we really couldn't feel like responsible people yeah. and still go. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, what if we just stayed in Illinois and went to like Shawnee National Park? And I'm trying to convince him that we we can do that and stay in a cabin that no one else has to come into and that it will still be good because I have to go somewhere. <laughs> I'm I cried this week thinking about all of the traveling I haven't done and yeah. now like won't get a chance to for who knows when yeah yeah um no we, so we felt I'm... we felt very safe and comfortable i mean it was like it was hiking and there was nobody out on the trails oh yeah um, and i think that a lot of the places that are like renting rooms and spaces now have like very well laid out and like thorough sanitation plans and like like i don't know if you guys brought your own linens but a lot of airbnb places now are like you have to bring your own sheets and towels Mm -hmm. we we Um, did not but they have like a you know it's a one day turnaround between rooms because they're doing a deep clean yeah etc etc so i don't think it's i don't think it's crazy to be doing some limited travel like that i would really be hesitant about doing any interstate travel right now Mm. um yeah, I'm glad you had a good time. Well, I, I guess I saw a lot of fibs on the road, so uh, your fellow Illinoisians are definitely coming up to Wisconsin. I gotta tell you, my friend, Wisconsin would not be high on my list of states to go to if I was considering interstate mm-hmm. travel. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> For correct reasons. Iowa yes. should be even lower. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so my stuck in my head this week is a little bit more conventional. It is a graphic novel that I just received um, a few days ago, picked up my pre-order, uh, called The Harrowing of Hell by Evan Dom. Uh, this is a graphic novel uh, version of the story of Christ, um, of the three days that he spent in hell in between being crucified and being resurrected. Um, it is not a commonly told story. Uh-uh. Um, I haven't, I'm still kind of scratching the surface of it because it's a very rich and complexly illustrated story. Um, but I really love um, apocryphal stuff and like the Gnostic stuff. I, I love the parts of the Bible that people want to pretend are not parts of the Bible. <laughs> um, and Evan Dom is a really talented uh, comic artist. So that is that's been sitting sitting with me for a bit. Is is this a currently available to the public, or is this your library and superpowers got a pre? Oh no, currently copy. available. I pre-ordered it in like March. Mm. Um, it. Uh, the publishing was delayed because of COVID, um, but no, I just picked it up from my indie bookstore. So anyone can anyone can go and have this be available to them. I am one hundred percent gonna have to check this out. 
do. Uh, it was published by one of my very favorite indie comic publishers out there right now, Iron Circus Comics. They are a Chicago-based indie uh, comics press that um, got their start doing stuff, uh, doing hugely successful projects on Kickstarter. Hmm. Uh, she, um, Spike Trotman is the woman who runs and owns it. And she, uh, I think, perfected the model of kickstarting anthologies for which every stretch goal was just let us pay our creators more. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So yeah. instead of having like a lot of bonus content for um, backers, it was just like if this hits X number of dollars all of the creators get a thousand dollar pay bump that's, <laughs> um, that's friggin amazing yeah she's great her stuff is great um and i am very much looking forward to uh you know finishing this it'll it's probably gonna be it's probably gonna be worth a couple of read-throughs mm -hmm. um but yeah like i said i love it when people turn stuff like this into easily consumable uh, <laughs> is it um it's same writer like the writer is also the the illustrator or is it a mix yes okay cool yep. cool interesting yeah evan dom used to do a um used to do a web comic called rice boy which was a wow, very that sounds familiar yeah it, it's a very strange very sweet little web comic about an odd little like white um kind of blob Oh my god, I totally, yeah. yeah. That goes on some kind of journey to, like, figure out who he is and stuff. Um, yeah, Evan does, Evan does great work. I totally remember this. This was, like, a back in the day. Yeah, okay, 2006 to 2008. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to take a quick recess, and we, when we come back, we are going to dive into all of the pleasures and horrors of gothic literature. As listeners of the show may know, I am a bit of a horror junkie. I enjoy things that are weird and spooky uh, and have a lot of feelings. Uh, and so it uh, felt like the right time to really get into the gothic. Um, and to start, I'm just going to talk real briefly about like the characteristics of like what we mean when we say gothic fiction let's define um, our terms yes exactly uh so i looked up a couple of different things because i kind of wondered if anybody had just made like a list of this is what makes a gothic story um and in fact there are uh <laughs> people not everyone agrees on how many there are but some of the some of the common elements that pop up in relation to uh defining what it means for a story or a thing to be gothic um, are gloomy, decaying setting, such as a haunted house or castle with secret passages, trapdoors, and other mysterious architecture, frequently located in isolated locations, the windswept moor springs mm -hmm. kind of immediately to mind. Both, both the word moor and heath immediately leapt into mind. Yes. Uh, supernatural beings or monsters, or the implication of such. 
uh, curses or prophecies, damsels in distress. Oh, sidebar about the word damsel used to be a gender neutral term. Really? Damsel does not necessarily refer to women. Cool. I just, I enjoyed that little uh, detail. Uh, Heroes, romance, and intense emotions. Um, I think that that last one is really key. Yes. um, As we kind of understand what, like, what we mean when we call something gothic. My understanding is that gothic fiction sort of sprung, I don't know if it sprang out of, but it was certainly refined by the romantic movement. It did not originate with them, but yes. Like the romantics took it and ran with it. Yeah, so um, people commonly agree that like the first, the first recognized piece of what we understand as Gothic literature is a novel from 1764 called The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, uh, who was an English author um, and had in its, by its second printing was being published with the subtitle A Gothic Story. Uh, and this is a story that, um, you know, contains all of that uh, threatening mysteries, ancestral curses. I was a little bummed I didn't learn about it before we picked our homework because I think it might have been fun for us to read. I don't know if I would have been able to finish it, um, but uh, just as sort of a historical artifact. Mm-hmm. Um And yeah, it has been um, kind of explored and refined by authors and artists since then. Um, Primarily English and German language. Yes, it is. And this is something I'm going to want to come back to because it is, I think, tends to be an intensely European, specifically white European um, kind of storytelling mode. Uh, which is going to make some of our conversation about our homeworks really interesting later in this episode. Um, But yeah, the 19th century, you get authors such as Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, um, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, Lord Byron Mm -hmm. did a whole bunch of this. And this is where, you know, also like Bram Stoker's Dracula. um, This is where we start to see what we think of as gothic start to branch into two recognizable features flavors perhaps flavors which share a lot of characteristics but can broadly be defined as gothic horror and gothic romance um they have a lot in common and i think that that comes down to that intense emotions category mm-hmm. um that we that we kind of started this so i wanted to start i don't know if you find gothic stories to be as attractive as i do um i, I don't know if it's quite as much your jam as it is mine <laughs> I, it is not not my jam um i like poe i like dracula i like del toro um i like a, a, a christmas carol i love it um i like a lot of the trappings of gothic literature mm-hmm. um I am definitely less interested in gothic romance. Um, sure. We will get into this when we get into Jane Eyre, um, but uh, that's just it, less interesting. Um, I like a good spooky thing. Uh, I like a good thing that sort of is like looking in the dark side of the human heart and what have you. Um, mm-hmm. Which also pops up a lot. Right, right. Uh, all uh, Most of the Poe that I read dealt with that in one way or the other. Um 
so like gothic fiction is not something that i'm like rah 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 for in the same way that you are but I, it, it's something that I do enjoy, and it's something that I, you know, have consumed for fun, will continue to consume for fun, and I enjoyed, um, you know, some of the homework that uh, we consumed this week. <laughs> um, yeah, let's start. Um, so we, um, w instead of assigning anything specific by Edgar Allan Poe, we just decided to pull some stuff. So what Choose did your own you, adventure. Yeah, what did you read? Um, so because this is the time of COVID, I was legally obligated to read The Mask of the Red Death. Fair. Which I did not have a strong memory of reading. Like, I was like, I don't know, some rich guy in a place in Plague Times or something? Uh, and I thought it was incredible. The rooms that he described, I'm gonna steal this at some point for a D&D &D campaign is what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, the, the, the imagery, the ideas behind the, the, uh, short story are, was just incredible. Um, I wanted to read The Pit and the Pendulum. I've read that a few times before, and every time I'm just like, this is incredible. I just didn't have time. Um, I read The Telltale Heart, and I read The Cask of Amontillado, another story that I've read many times and which I thoroughly love. And also, I, I pronounced correctly this time. Yay! <laughs> Listeners of last uh, episode will know that uh, Amontillado is not a word that comes to my mind readily. <laughs> Um, yeah, I also read The Cask of Amontillado because I had not read that one before, but mm. because I exist in the world, I'm familiar with it. So, sure. like, dear God, Montresor, like, I'm down. Uh -huh. yeah. um, I also read The Fall of the House of Usher mm -hmm. because I knew that that was going to have a lot of tonal similarities to other things that we would be talking about. Was this your first time reading Usher? It was my first time reading the entirety of Usher. I had to read that, or slash got to read that, in high school american english class it's wild <laughs> it was like i i have very fond memories of reading it back when i was 16 17 however old um and then i read the telltale heart because it's one of my faves mm -hmm. and then i also read a shorter story called eleonora um so instead of getting into like the plot particulars on these because i i kind of don't think those matter all that much um I am very interested in what we like commonalities that we found between the the stories that we read mm -hmm. and what we can see carry over into um the other homeworks that we assigned. So, so in in general, I would say a creeping sense of dread is yes. very pervasive. Uh, in in Poe's work, like that sense of dread, he he frequently will will lead off a story with like things got real bad, guys. Yeah, <laughs> let like, me tell you I, how we got here. I'm not a crazy person. Let me explain. You may be wondering how <laughs> yeah. we ended up here. <laughs> Record scratch. Um, yes. I so this doesn't carry over to our other two homeworks, I don't think. But okay. a a through line for at least uh, Montiato and Telltale Heart, is that the main character is the villain. Um, or, or certainly, yeah, is, is the, the one who did the deed. And I, what I do think gets carried over is that we don't necessarily know that our narrator is the bad guy. Like, mm. sort of um, the, the reader discovering at a later point who the actual villain of the story is. Right. 
Yeah, that's uh, a good point. Like, if you're reading it for the very first time, you're like, oh, this Fortunato, he must have done something bad. And then you never find out. And then Montressor is the bad guy. <laughs> Which, I gotta tell you, I had to read, I went back through the story a couple of times, because I was like, is there something missing here? Like, should there have been a different opening paragraph for this story? <laughs> right. The, the end notes I was reading were like, oh no, it's all about the Masons versus the Roman Catholics. And I'm like, it is? I don't I don't think it is. We get one brief mention of the narrator being a mason. Right. Um no, and Casco Montiato isn't maybe the best example for that, but I do think it's true for something like the Telltale Heart when you find out like, oh, dude's a murderer. Yeah, yeah. But but he leads off with like, oh, poor me, a horrible thing has happened. Let me tell you about I, it. And I, I I'm, like, I'm a oh, nervous dude, person. You, you did a bad yeah you did a bad thing um but yeah this idea of the the villain or the monster of the story not being the like obvious suspect Uh, another thing that all three of the ones that i read that again i don't think carries over to our other two homeworks is a sense of almost like hubristic enjoyment at the perfect plot that they carried out um, e- even in Mask of the Red Death, the, the uh, Prince Prospero being like, yes, I have perfectly sealed myself and my guests away from plague. Um, in um, in, Am- in Amontillado, he's like, yes, I, I've done this thing and I've kept it secret for 50 years. I think we get a little bit of that in The Devil's Backbone, except that it's not true. Mm. Like, with I think, with, with, I think with Jacinto, uh, Jacinto, yeah. Yeah, I think Jacinto thinks that he has pulled one over on everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has not. Yes, yes. <laughs> do we want to do we want to kind of get into our other stories? Sure. Or is there anything else post specific that we would like to address? I am I, I, I was I'm uh, oh, sorry. Mm, go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say I think that the um the hopeless romance aspect of later Gothic romance gets very clearly articulated by Poe. I mean, that's what Eleonora is completely about. Mm. Um, This idea of like the hopeless love that is all consuming and can never be uh, realized. And Eleonora, it's because she's dead, Um, Ah. (laughs) which is also kind of true for the Raven, I think. Uh, Yeah, Eleanor. Yeah, I think Eleanor's dead. And has um, also shows its face a, a little bit. I actually, I don't know if there's supposed to be a romance between the narrator and the sister in Fall of the House of Usher. Um, but that that sense of hopeless romance because death itself is standing in the way, I do think gets utilized frequently for more modern Gothic romance stories. Right. Um, also, uh, something, something helpless romance with your 13-year-old cousin something something Vomit. <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks thanks poe thanks poe <laughs> um, um i was just gonna say i was it, it's been a while since i've read poe and i forgot how short so many of his stories are like oh yeah the, like telltale heart and like mask of the red death and all of the rest are like true canon works and they're like six pages they're like little yeah. delicious nuggets yeah. of tight storytelling right right he accomplishes a lot. Um, in... All the modern uh, fantasy yeah. and sci-fi writers who need editors <laughs> uh, should read uh, Poe. 
shoot, H.P. Lovecraft should read Poe. There's a lot going on with H.P. Lovecraft. We haven't talked about it, we're not going to talk about it, but I think Lovecraft Country is dropping today. Not today, a Mm. week from today. A week from today? Dang, okay. Yeah, I saw August 17th, so a week from tomorrow, actually. Okie dokie. Not soon enough is the point. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into the rest of our homeworks. Yes. Uh, so going chrono, well, actually, I would like to start with Jane Eyre, even though it was made later. It's, it's chronological in a different way. Yes. Actually, it isn't. It, I think it predates Poe. <laughs> We're all over the timeline. Doesn't matter. I, well, okay. Gotta move forward. Uh, so we watched the 2011 adaptation of Jane Eyre starring, or directed by Carrie Fukunaga and starring Mia Wasikowska. I I'm probably not saying her name right. Um, Michael Fassbender, Jamie Bell, and the inimitable... Um, Dame Judi Dench. Dame, I wanted to say Angela Lansbury, and I was like, that's mm. not correct. Also Sally Hawkins. Yes. No, everyone is in this movie. Uh, Jane Eyre is the story of Jane, who... I mean, it's the story of her life, basically. So she um, is orphaned at a very young age and gets... Uh, the responsibility of raising her gets picked up by her aunt, who is horrible, and sends her off to Lowood, the boarding school, where a bunch of girls die from typhus. Uh, she eventually grows up and accepts a job um, tutoring a young girl at Thornfield Hall, which ends up being owned by Mr. Rochester, who is played by um, a Michael very Fassbender. attractive Michael Fassbender. Yes, uh, the two of them have a fairly forbidden romance, considering she's a governess and he is a lord. Maybe a lord? He's rich. He's, he's got he's a lot of money. Landed gentry at the least. Yes. Um, and so they're about to get married when, surprise, we find out that Mr. Rochester has a secret wife in the attic. Um, finding out that he is still lawfully wed, Jane flees um, and takes a teaching position with a little church um jamie bell plays the uh pastor at that church who eventually is like you should marry me and be my missionary's wife when i go to india and jane says "Mm, hard no no hard no about that uh she is called through mystical means back to thornfield hall which she discovers has partially burned down killing mr rochester's wife leaving him crippled and finally opening the door for them to be lawfully wed and together. That was a fairly <laughs> succinct and flippant way of describing I, the story. I don't disagree with anything you said, and some points you're like, oh, that's what happened in that movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, had you read this book? I was required to read this book as a sophomore in high school English, and it was my second least favorite thing that I read in high school, second only to Great Expectations, a book I did not finish. Ah, uh, see, I I would encourage you to give it, an, a, give it Here's the... a look as an adult human. Here's the problem. I watched this movie... I love Kerry Fukunaga's eye. Uh, it was beautifully directed, beautifully shot, beautifully lit. Um, I'd never heard of the cinematographer before. He's a, uh, a Brazilian uh, cinematographer who's worked with uh, Fukunaga on some of his earlier works. Um, hasn't done a lot that I know, and I was just like, this is gorgeous looking. Um, Michael Fassbender is one of the most attractive people on the planet. 
Mia Wasikowska is very well cast as a wide-eyed, doughy-looking, uh, you know, doughy-eyed person. Uh, if we were going to reshoot this movie now, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy would do a very good job in that role. Um, she played Emma, so that kind of makes sense. Um, first off, there was zero chemistry between Mia Wasikowska and Michael Fassbender, which is surprising because he's the most attractive man on the planet, give or he's take. He's not. Give or take. Um, <laughs> also, Mr. Rochester is the worst. <laughs> Fair enough and true. Um, the other thing is, I just do not care at all about the plot of this movie. Uh, I'm looking at beautiful people in beautiful settings that is beautifully shot, and uh, about halfway to two-thirds of the way through, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't care. This is boring. Whatever. Um, and actually, don't reread this book because I think the movie remixes the events of the book in a much more dynamic way. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book is very chronological, so it's very this is her childhood, this is her time at Thornfield, this is her time at the church, and one of the strengths of this movie, I think, and is a very modern kind of t storytelling convention, is how it mixes up the timeline. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was watching this movie with my wife, Marin, who thoroughly enjoyed it and was comparing it to other adaptations and the book, all of which she knew very well, um, and, and got a lot more out of it than I did. <laughs> you know, it, it, lusciously shot, hard to complain about it, but yeah. I just don't care. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed it. I loved the novel when I read it as a teenager. Um, I have been thinking about rereading it as an adult because I think I would love it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but the movie, like, I, I want to talk about this in kind of two capacities. One, when the novel was written, it is very much recognized. And I looked this up beforehand to make sure. Um, it is recognized as a gothic story. Um, and that's because it has a lot of, like, windswept moors and yes. creaky old houses. And a mad woman in the attic. Living in the attic. <laughs> yes. Um, who functions very similarly in this book um, to a ghost. Like, she is kind of a haunting presence in Thornfield Hall. She is the the kind of malignancy that hangs over uh, Mr. Rochester and is preventing Jane's, like, is one of the factors preventing Jane and his happiness. My My two thoughts were, one, I wanted more of that before she was revealed. It's like, I knew it was coming, so when it came, it wasn't surprising, but it did sort of feel like it came out of nowhere. And apparently in both the book and in other adaptations, that sort of played up a little bit more. It is. I think that this movie is kind of expecting the shadows and the candlelight to do a lot of the sort of spooky set dressing, heavy lifting. Right. So rather than um, playing heavily into like, do we think that Bertha's a ghost or not? The, the movie may also know that we already know that. Right. The movie is adapting a book that's 150 years old. Everyone has read it in high school. We all know that there's a, a woman in the attic. So it may just have decided, like, we don't need to spend that much time trying to convince our audience that, that, that Thornfield is haunted. Right. Which I, I like, think is a fair choice. It was just a disappointing one. Um, well, I, sorry, yeah. my, my, my other question, which you will hopefully be able to shed light on, vague pun intended, is are we supposed to infer that she's the one lighting the fires? Yes. Okay, great. That's what I thought. Yeah, she she waits until her caretaker is uh, passed out drunk and basically escapes to set stuff on fire. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, fair. You're locked in an attic your whole life. I'd start burning things down too. 
Um, but I, I, one of the things that I really appreciated about this adaptation is that it maintains a lot of the very traditional elements of the Gothic story, like the, the imagery um, of the of Thornfield Hall, like the windswept plains, the like dark colors, um, the the damsel in distress function, and also everyone's feelings are the strongest feelings they've ever had yes. before. Yes, this is um, capital R romantic. But because of the way it tells the story, it feels more modern. Like the the not the story. The story is itself is still very, um, you know, eight nineteen eighteenth century England. Nineteenth century. Nineteenth uh, century. Um, but the way that it goes about it, like have telling the story in flashbacks and kind of making the way that it's told a little bit more dynamic from just moving from point a to point b to point c mm-hmm. um i thought made the pace of the story feel more modern because i do think that gothic storytelling can occasionally be extremely slow yes yes i so when i think of og gothic i think of your um wuthering heights and jane Eyre and like yeah. and frankenstein and dracula um dracula is very late and is doing some interesting stuff with, like, found media, so I'm sort of going to pull that out. But, like, the ideas in Frankenstein are so interesting, and then reading it is slow. Not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I've not read Wuthering Heights, but my understanding is that it's a lot... <laughs> my understanding from Kate Beaton is that it's a lot of brooding looks. Um, and that makes sense when we're talking about capital R romantic and windswept moors and all the rest of it. Um, and also a more repressed society. Um... I, I I take your point in, in not having a strong memory of how the book is structured, that this movie's structure felt modern. Um, well, and it's the only adaptation that I'm aware of that does this. Hmm, okay. Of, of Jane Eyre. Like, I, I think that most of them are inclined towards, like, just a pretty played straight re- or interpretation of events. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first one that I can recall that is like, no, you know what? The um, we're gonna start kind of in media res and then work backwards from that. Well, and also my understanding is that this one fast forwards a little bit through her childhood, uh, like in the orphanage, because that's not because, important. Because who cares? Yes, right. the important part is really the relationship that she has with Rochester, right? And how that influences basically every decision that she makes once she meets him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, like, and their first meeting scene is very well done. Um, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was like, huh. Yeah. He's on a horse, <laughs> also, and then he falls off the horse. Also, he's obviously a maniac from, like, from the get-go. Oh I'm telling you, I love this book, but Mr. Rochester is the worst (laughs) when he's talking about how he could he's he's kind of so one of one of the things that i have always felt about this is that a big part of jane's attraction to mr rochester is the danger Mm. of him Mm -hmm. which is something that i think pops up in a lot of modern gothic romance like this allure of the forbidden or also maybe Um, the bad boy yeah, and like when he's talking, when she finds out that he's secret married, and he's like, "I could bend you to my will, like I could have you, if I, I like, I could just reach out and take you, but I want you to give yourself to me willingly." It's like, "Ooh, 
dude, not a great look. <laughs> that's that's like that is literally what a Dracula might say. Well, and it, it is very much the idea of like the dangerous man or the bad boy that is changed by the power of his love for Jane. Right. Um, which is, you know, it's the prototype to Twilight. <laughs> it's all over that. Well, and I, I do think like Fassbender was perfectly cast because he has that. He's he's deeply attractive, but he also has that like scary like he can bring a scary magnetism to the presence where it's like i totally get why you're attracted to this person and also this person is a maniac mm -hmm. tom hardy would also be good i think i would have enjoyed tom hardy more but that's just because generally i enjoy tom hardy mm. more mm. i'm pretty I, I equal opportunity if, with if those that, two if this movie if this movie had been made three to five years later it would have been um, Tom Hiddleston. Yes, and Tom Hiddleston would have brought the same kind of Michael Fassbender energy, which would have been very good. Like, Tom Hiddleston could play this role very well. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston didn't quite play this role in Crimson Peak, but he kind of played this role in Crimson Peak. He played an homage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, would we like to... I was a little surprised that you didn't assign Crimson Peak for the... Guillermo del Toro. Well, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's because I had watched it again recently, and I'd never seen The Devil's Backbone. Oh, so, well, there we go. Yeah. So uh, the next movie we're going to talk about is The Devil's Backbone, a 2001 film by Guillermo del Toro, uh, who, which stars uh, Marissa Paredes as Carmen, Eduardo Noriega as Jacinto, Frederico Lupi as Doctor Cazares. Uh, Fernando Tielve as Carlos, and then a bunch of children as children in the orphanage. Um, would you like to give our synoptic rundown sure. of this movie, since I did the last one? Sure. Uh, so this movie is set during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Del Toro has described it as the sibling film to Pan's Labyrinth, because they are both about um, children living during the Spanish Civil War. Um, this is at a an orphanage run by uh, Cesares and Carmen, uh, an elderly or elderly pair um, who are both part of the uh, the Republicans' cause. That's the leftists. Um, during the waning days of the war, when the Republicans are on the like are are losing to the Nationalists, the the fascists, um, the orphanage has a large bomb in the middle of its courtyard which they say is diffused it fell there one night uh, and did not explode and some people came and supposedly diffused it um we uh begin the movie with a young boy first off this plot is insane so i'm not gonna be able to uh properly <laughs> describe it uh, a young boy arrives whose father was recently uh, whose father was fighting for the republicans uh was killed so he is now being brought to the orphanage by um uh, you know, other members of the, the Republicans. Um, he's taken under the care of the orphanage, befriends through trials and tribulations the other boys in the orphanage, and sees a spooky ghost boy uh, who is all over this orphanage, whom we learn is, a, is the murdered former orphan, also at this orphanage. Um, he, we, we learn that he was murdered by Jacinto, the... Um, it's a soft C, Jacinto. Ah, Jacinto, thank you. Uh, my, my Latin training is screwing up my pronunciation of everything. Um, 
uh, Jacinto, who is the groundskeeper, uh, who is in a romantic relationship with both uh, Conchita, a teacher there, and also Carmen, the uh, head of the orphanage. Um, Jacinto knows that the orphanage has a bunch of gold that the Republicans have hidden there uh, to fund the cause and is looking for it himself. Things ensue. Uh, he is kicked, uh, uh, Jacinto is kicked out of the orphanage, returns with some cronies to try to find the gold, um, people die, ghosts are involved, the boys, uh, fight back, uh, Jacinto is finally killed in the end, uh, by a combination of the boys and also the ghost of the boy whom he killed way back, uh, the night that the bomb landed in the orphanage, um, I, I saw this movie back in college, so I vaguely remembered it. I read the plot summary before I rewatched it. I watched it. This plot is very, like, it makes total sense when you're watching it, but trying to explain it and reading the plot summary, it makes, it's very difficult to explain. Um, it is uh, very early, early Guillermo del Toro. I mean, it's very Guillermo del Toro, but it's, um, so there's a lot of, you know, children... Much like Pan's Labyrinth, it's children who are grappling with things beyond what they should be forced to grapple with and um, rising to the occasion and gothic horror slash sort of magical realism uh, baked in as you have a, a, a spooky ghost. Um, Dr. Cesares eventually dies and himself comes back as a helpful ghost uh, for a little bit. Um, am I missing anything crucial? No, I mean, this is the movie that Guillermo del Toro has been perfecting for 20 years. Mm -hmm. It was his third film, uh, for context on that one. Yeah, but also, I I was commenting on Twitter that, like, so I, I love del Toro. Yes. I will watch anything that he is attached to. Yes. Um, there is an incredibly direct through line in that they are all basically the same movie from The Devil's Backbone to Pan's Labyrinth to Crimson Peak to The Shape of Water. Like, this is the movie that del Toro is clearly interested in making and it's fine because it's a great movie. <laughs> um, what do you mean by that? Cause I, I can, I, I can absolutely see the, the through line between this and Pan's Labyrinth, but it feels shakier when we get to say it's shape of water. Ah, uh, let me tell you. Thank you. So in all of these movies, we have a monster. That's not a monster. Mm -hmm. We have an innocent who is tasked with protecting, defending, or interpreting the monster. That part gets a little... Um, soft. Not soft, just changes based on the plot that we are kind of in. Mm -hmm. um, the true monster is always a person. Usually a man. Is, yes, who is completely miserable by the fact of his um, monstrosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is always a point at which the true monster is the true monster is in service to the politics of the movie uh whether it, whether it is fascism of the spanish Ameri uh, spanish civil war or um the us government in shape of water right and is also part of what eventually defeats them like they are also um helped to be defeated by whatever aspects of the that environment they are kind of embodying 
fascism will defeat itself that sort of idea greed greed will lead to your downfall as in this movie yeah Mm -hmm. um yeah it's i mean it's the most the most direct comparison is pan's labyrinth because it also takes place during the spanish civil war but in crimson peak like you have crimson peak is another ghost story it's been a while since i've seen crimson peak so i'm on shakier ground here than you so a lot of the ghost stuff in devil's backbone gets played out almost exactly the same way in crimson peak like we get a ghost who is um a warning more than anything else like the ghost presents no actual danger to our protagonist but in act one they don't know that so it's a scary ghost right so it's a scary ghost because we're scared of ghosts Mm -hmm. and actually the ghost is acting as some kind of messenger so in crimson peak um oh what is her name it again it's been a while is the ghost in crimson peak a previous wife who was murdered there are a couple of ghosts in crimson peak the first one we see is Mia Wasik, uh Edith. Edith is the character's name. The first ghost we see is Edith's mother. And then the subsequent ghosts we see are the ghosts of the previous wives that have been killed for um, Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston's evil incest sex plot. Right. Which is basically about getting money from rich young yeah, ladies. They're, they're and then black widowing. Yeah. They're black widowing all of these women. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Edith sees the ghosts and then part of what she then has to do, inclu- like, in addition to saving herself from the actual monster of the movie, um, part of what she has to do is help these ghosts find their peace or their rest. Right. Which also happens in this, um, although oddly, uh, Cesares, who both begins and ends the movie with his, with, with the same narration, which is a nice touch, um... You feel like, I I think he's found rest, but also he's still there. Well, but I don't think, I don't think Carlos is there to help him. Carlos is there to help Santi find his peace. Right. Um, And I think there can also be an argument made that Dr. Cesaris's peace is guarding this Mm. encampment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I'm not sure which track is kind of canon, but I, I do think it's legit to say that Carlos's job is to help Santi, the boy. Right. Which he does. Right. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is that Del Toro is clearly in love with the conventions of Gothic storytelling. Like it yes. is all over his work and he is a Spanish filmmaker. So I really love seeing him utilize all of these very gothic um, tropes and conventions and visual cues um, in a way that is entirely not like Victorian or British mm-hmm. or German. Like it's it is a way the the way that he makes them universal. I find to be very appealing. Yes. Um. Sim- similar and relatedly. I love how bright this movie is. Um, yes. In the like, obviously, in nighttime it's dark, and in in the underground areas it's dark. But so much of it isn't just baked sunlit courtyards, um, oranges and yellows and and reds and and light, but it's still spooky and it's still I'm very a, gothic. I'm a huge fan of setting your horror in the daytime. Yes. 
I think it is much harder to make a captivating and scary horror movie when you're not kind of relying on darkness the, yeah. hiding all of your stuff. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, this captures a lot of, like, it, it uses a lot of the gothic tropes of, like, the decrepit old building. Uh, because the orphanage is a decrepit old building. It's just a Spanish decrepit old building rather than a, you know, windswept mansion on a moor. Um mm-hmm. So it's 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 a it's a windswept orphanage on the Spanish plains. Yes, and we have a lot of very intense emotions. Mm-hmm. We have um, a ghost, obviously. Um, we also have good special effects monster. on the ghost. Yeah, he's I was, a, he's a I, scary looking ghost, especially for two thousand and one. Yes, I really liked the way. So Santi dies as in a combination of a head wound and then drowning. Mm-hmm. So whenever his ghost appears on screen, he's a little bit distorted, as though seeing him from underwater, which mm-hmm. I thought was a very clever touch. Um, and um, then also his head wound bleeds up when it when you see his head is, wound as a ghost, which another, is. And it's another effect that Del Toro borrows for Crimson Peak. It's also such a good Del Toro effect. Like, you know, he sketched that in his notebook somewhere and was like, yes, yes <laughs> this is this is what I want my movie to look like. <laughs> um, yeah, and we have like the you know monster is, you know, man is actually the monster. Um, well, and, and Jacinto is an interesting like, I think he's a very. He feels to me more. Um, sympathetic than some of the other monsters in del toro's works like he's more sympathetic than the fascist captain in pan's labyrinth for example um because like he uh, apparently the actor like del toro gave the actor like a 15 page backstory for the character um uh and you know it's like like the backstory is basically like this was a guy who was raised in the orphanage hated it was probably abused there uh, clearly, like, started sleeping with the, uh, with Carmen. I was gonna say, we know that he was sexually abused. Right, like, he started sleeping with Carmen when at least he was 17, if not earlier, um, and then was certainly probably physically abused while there, left the orphanage, came back, is unhappy with that, is unhappy with everything in his life, um, wants to get some money, and, like, says early in the film, like, he wants to be rich enough to buy the orphanage so he can tear it down. Uh, yeah, and... I mean, he's he's definitely a guy for whom everything in his life has gone wrong. Yes, and, and also someone who feels all his emotions dialed up to 11. Um, we're also dealing with the Spanish Civil War, and a large part of the fascist side is some good old-school uh, patriarchy, because uh, it's also like the Catholic Church and fascism and patriarchy and uh, all go hand-in-hand, hand. so, like, and masculinity, um toxic masculinity uh so he's this is not in the movie per se but he would be steeped in a culture that is probably telling him that like he needs to be a man oh i think that's in the movie i mean he has that scene at the end with uh the teacher where all of his gross buddies are like Mm. just take care of her and he's like just you know, like, say apologize. Yeah. yeah, make me look good and this will be fine. And she's like, you're pathetic. And then he kills her because yeah. he can't be seen to be weak, uh, to be weak uh, against this you know, woman who weighs 50 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. And, and that shows up in the kids, too, uh, in the early scene when they're, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Carlos is going to go out to, to get some water. He's basically dared into it. And it's like, what are you, a coward? Are you, a you know, are you gay? Whatever. It's like it's very much like even even the boys have 
taken this culture. So yeah, and in that it is also very steeped in like these kind of stilted uh, values, um, which I I kind of like the parallel to draw to Jane Eyre. Although the in in that story, the bucking of those values is actually a bad thing. Sort of. I don't know. That actually, explain explain this more. Clean. Okay, so I'm thinking about the fact that Jane refuses to live, basically to live in sin with Rochester, because she's like, I know you're still married. So she's the one that's demanding that this value be honored. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the same thing, because when she is then asked to like perform this duty of being a missionary's wife, she's like, no, <laughs> like that's gross. So I, I actually think that Jane represents kind of an interesting intersection of this where value where values have strength and where the outdated ones don't. But hmm. I don't think it's as clean of a comparison as I initially I don't think it's as clean of a line to what we were just talking about with the devil's backbone as I thought that it was. The, I like, kind of talked myself out of it. <laughs> I mean, the other side, knowing you've already talked yourself out of it, is that, like, in my mind, Jane is, like, humiliated in a way. Like, it's not that she's upholding values of I'm not going to live in sin with you. It's like, we were getting married, and then at the altar, some dudes were like, you got a wife still, and I did not know that. Uh, and now it's I'm... Her, yeah, it's her humiliation, um, but it's also her deciding like what is valued to her like it's not it's not as easy as just like i don't want to live in sin with you right it's her deciding like this is more this value is more important to me than um you my romantic (laughs) happiness with this man you not hiding things such as the fact that you are already married and your wife lives upstairs yeah Um, and like maintaining that kind of an um Autonomy autonomy of self, I think, is a more legitimate value than you're not a man if you can't go get water by yourself. (laughs) Right. Or or if this uh, tiny woman who poses no threat to anyone, you know, makes fun of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then I guess also if we want to continue the discussion of kind of what role... um, personal values have in these stories like carlos's value of self i think is what enables him to be the one that can help santi because he's not afraid of santi Mm -hmm. um he's like assured enough in the fact that helping him is the right thing to do that he is able to like stand up to the ghost and not be afraid of him right and and through that, like he he lets the other boys also self actualize in a important way. Because mm-hmm. they they all end up banding together to kill Jacinto at the end, mm-hmm. which um, could symbolically be them to like they are they're breaking that chain of toxicity. Like they kill him and then they leave the orphanage to go hopefully find something better. Mm-hmm. And Jacinto is the one that eventually returned to the orphanage to kind of perpetuate these cycles of violence. Right. So the the boys get a chance to uh, subvert that and escape it. Right. 
Hopefully. I mean, they're, they're, also, they're also walking into what is rapidly becoming Franco's Spain, so hopefully they make it to France. Although, at that point, they've only got a couple years before I mean, it becomes Vichy France. Like, it is kind of the other thing that Del Toro loves, is the ambiguously optimistic ending. Yes. Like, is this a happy ending? Right. right. I want it to be. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not a sad ending. But, but it's, you know... The, the the last shot with with uh like the ghost of Cesar sort of watching the boys leave it's like all right so we've got like six or seven boys they're walking who knows how far all of their transport has been by car to this orphanage one of them is limping on a stick one of them is being carried by one of the other boys it's hot it's sunny they don't have water um who knows what's going to become of them but also if they stayed in the orphanage like, no one's coming for them. Right, right, yeah. Like, leaving is the best of bad outcomes. Yes. <laughs> um. So, this was your first time seeing this. Obviously, you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Where would you put it in Del Toro's oeuvre? So, I think that Pan's Labyrinth is the best thing he's ever made. Yeah, um, I cannot disagree with that <laughs> statement, because that is a, a just a true I statement th- of fact. And I think that The Shape of Water is the most Del Toro thing he's ever made. Um, Like, that one is kind of the pinnacle of, like, self-indulgence, but but in, like, an exquisitely composed way. It's, it's self-indulgent, but we like what he's indulging in, so carry on. Yeah, I think that I would put this one... I think... Well, and I'm just going to put this out into the world. It isn't the best thing, but my favorite movie that he's ever made is Pacific Rim. <laughs> so we're just going to let that one, we're just going to let that one sit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I would put this one third after Pan's Labyrinth and the Shape of Water. Wow. The Shape of Water that... is such a perfectly tailored no movie. no my my wow is at how how you put this um oh I, why I, I like this one a lot but i i feel like i might put other things uh, i say i might put other things above it but here i am pulling up his filmography to see uh what i would actually do on this one I think this uh, movie is a great movie <laughs> i mean <clears throat> sorry uh, i really liked it too um oh here's the thing i love his hellboys a lot Hellboy is a really good movie. Yeah, and Hellboy 2 I like a lot. Hellboy 2 I wasn't a huge fan of. Uh, I mean, you, you give me, like, elves and, and Celtic mythology nonsense, and I'm in well enough, yeah, so... I mean, it was it was fine. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so I guess that would be my only... <laughs> and then I've uh, never seen... I've never seen Kronos. Kronos is good. It's very much a a first film. Um, it's also a very, like, it's a total Del Toro film. Yeah. Um, but it's also a, a first film, so. Ron, Ron, Ron I, Perlman is in it, so obviously it's a Del Toro film. Apparently he's making a live-action Pinocchio for Disney. I'm seeing for Netflix. Oh, okay. I just saw Pinocchio, and I guess I assumed that it was... It's gonna be uh, a stop-motion animated musical dark fantasy film. Literally everything that you just said <laughs> was intensely mind-jammed. Uh, co-written and directed by Del Toro, based on uh, Gree Grimley's design from his 2002 edition 
of the book Pinocchio. I don't know who Gree, and I might be mispronouncing that name, uh, Grimly is, but... Fantastic. Yeah. I think we should wrap up. Yep. Uh, Oh, nope, (laughs) hold on. Uh, It stars the voices of Ian McGregor, Ron Perlman, Tilda Swinton, Christoph Waltz, and David Bradley, whom I don't know. Oh, no, he's Filch. Okay. Um... So, yeah, going to be great. Hope that movie gets released. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Uh, Any other final thoughts that we have on the gothic? No, I like I enjoyed this this topic. You you joked at multiple points that you sort of like rammed this one through. But like it was a fun topic. It was a very diverse set of media that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, Even though I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Jane Eyre, I still appreciated the fact that I watched it. and. I think Gothic has a lot of interesting ideas to mine, and I think we only kind of scratched the surface on it. Uh, we didn't oh, even yeah. get into, like, Gothic subculture nowadays, which would have been I, a different direction to go. I was going to say, I was looking at a list of, like, modern Gothic works, and it's like, oh, I could do a whole episode on Southern Gothic stuff. Mm, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I, I know that you've recently been watching all of True Blood. I, I, yeah, I assume I that's finished... Southern Gothic. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Lovecraft Country coming mm, out sure. in a week is going to be. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I I think that um, one of my inspirations for wanting to talk about this was looking at the similarities between like Gothic romance and Gothic horror, which we definitely touched on. But like the influence of Gothic horror in modern romance is almost a separate topic. Like... And one that I am not qualified to talk about. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it. I I think that I am fascinated by the way that horror tropes get utilized in romance. Hmm. Sure. Like that in and of itself, I think is is of interest to me, which we kind of touched on, and we may explore further. But for now, things are getting late, and we've run out of time. Yeah. Um. Um. So. That is going to do it for our discussion today. Uh, you can find the show um, on all good podcatchers wherever you are listening uh, to this now. We're on SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, all the usual suspects. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, yes. Uh, you can find us on social media at DYDYH Podcast, uh, and you can find us on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework? Um, you can reach out to the show at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, and you can follow us individually if that's not enough content. Uh, I'm on social media pretty much everywhere at Magical Martha. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Um, on alternating Wednesdays from when this podcast releases, I do another show with Pete's wife, Marin called Love Ya, where we watch a romantic comedy or teen movie, and then we dissect it. Our movie coming up is going to be the, I believe it's a Hulu original called sure. Plus One. Yeah, it's, it's one of the streamings. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, and also sometimes I write a newsletter, which you can find at tinyletter.com forward slash Magical Martha. Uh, and then what are we talking about next week? Uh, next week? Who knows? Because it's a Insert. Rashomon episode. Insert here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we won't know what we're talking about because truth is flexible. 
Yes. <laughs> um, yes, we are going to be talking about Rashomon and the Rashomon effect, the idea of unreliable narrators and concealed truth, multiple interpretations of the same story. It's going to be a really good episode. We've got three movies lined up. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Rashomon, the uh, 1950 Kurosawa movie that gave this trope its title. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the 2002 wuxia film Hero, directed by Zhang Yimou. And we're going to be talking about the 2016 South Korea movie The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook, uh, based on a 2002 novel called The Fingersmith. So, those are your homeworks for next episode. Thanks for listening, enjoy doing your homework, and class dismissed. Cool. Cool. Um, even though we've been recording for an hour 42, 35 minutes of that was not <laughs> was was pre-episode, so we're gonna be within, you know, it might be a little over an hour, but not terribly much. Sounds good to me. Yeah, totally. Good episode. This was a good conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm gonna go I'll to bed. Later. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Bye. Bye.